Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. We are continuing our sermon series, actually finishing our sermon series in the book of Mark. So today we're going to look at Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You can find this on page 853 in the Blue Pew Bibles and page 1015 in the Red Pew Bibles, which are a little bit larger print. If you don't see a Pew Bible around you, right next to that pillar in the back, we have a whole bunch. We'd love for you to get up and grab one. We'd love for you to be able to read the word with us. As you turn there, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. Again, be praying in your own time this week for General Assembly. We would appreciate your prayers. Uh, Dave Vogelpohl and I are going as your representatives. Pray for uh, safety. Pray for wisdom. uh, Pray for patience. Um, Just keep us in your prayers. I also want to remind you that as you hear the sermon, we have these notebooks in the back. We'd love for you to take one. They're on the back shelf there. Uh, This is a a notebook that we want to gift to you so that you can take sermon notes and bring it back every week so that you can keep track of what we're going through. Uh, If you're starting today, you'll be starting with the last sermon in Mark, but that's okay. We'll keep going in Scripture from now on. So these are a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to take one, uh, to take notes as well. Also, back on that back shelf, we have these little cards. These are great uh, opportunities for you to share with those you love. Just an invitation card. It's got our information on it. It's got a QR code on the back that sends people to our website and our information. This is a way to start conversations about church. If you know somebody who doesn't go to church or is looking for a church, that would be a great way to invite them, so please grab some of those uh, on your way out. There's also going to be a youth family meeting for a few minutes after worship, so if you are a youth family, please make sure you uh, stick around for that. Now that you have turned to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now when he, that is Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they, the disciples, went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. 
Father, we thank you for this text. We pray that as we look at it, as we study what it is that you've written, that we would have a better understanding of Jesus and the things that he wants us to do. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The disciples have gone on quite the journey. They were living their lives, doing the things that they normally did when they were chosen by Jesus, called out of their normal life. Some were successful and gave it all up in order to follow Jesus. They walked with Jesus for two years. They'd seen Christ do some amazing things. They saw him taught, teach with authority. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him control the weather. They saw him heal people. They saw him confront the religious leaders, and they saw him preach the gospel. And that whole time, he was also teaching and pouring into them. They got to hear him in the public sphere, but they also got to hear him privately when they went away from the crowds. He was answering their questions, teaching them, and pouring his life into them. Early on, he sends them out to preach and cast out demons. They had the power of the Spirit, and they come back rejuvenated and excited for all that Christ is doing. They had seen incredible miracles, things that couldn't be explained by any power but God's power alone. And they'd also seen opposition. They traveled around the Holy Land. They had seen religious leaders fight against Jesus, try to trap Jesus, try to trick Jesus, try to, try to arrest Jesus. But Christ always had an answer. He always knew what to say. He always knew how to respond to them. He always knew how to get out of their entrapment. Now, recently Christ had said some weird things about suffering, death, and rising again, but... They probably forgot that because that was followed by this triumphant entry into Jerusalem where even the people gathered, put their cloaks on the road and yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. During that week following the triumphant uh, entry, we saw this amazing teaching and fellowship. And the disciples at that time have got to be thinking, we made the right choice. We made the right choice to stop what we were doing and follow Jesus. And then, everything went wrong. After celebrating that holy meal together, Jesus was betrayed. One of their number betrayed Jesus. He was arrested, unjustly tried, and killed. And in the midst of all this, the disciples didn't stand by his side and try and save him. Instead, out of fear, they ran. They hid. And now that Jesus is dead, they're hiding again. They're hiding together, wondering if they are next. They're wondering if the religious leaders will not be satisfied just killing Jesus, but want to wipe out everybody that was around him. They're fearing for their lives. They're likely depressed. They're in a spiritual stupor. They had given everything up to follow Jesus. And now he's dead. 
And probably all they've been thinking for the last few days is, why did I do this? What does it mean? Do I have any hope? They're wondering, as we are, as we read this, what's going to happen next? What are they supposed to do next? How long do they have to remain in hiding? Picture how they felt as they're hiding together in this room, restless, emotional, and scared. That's where the disciples are right now in our text. Not sure what to do. Incredibly scared. Wondering if they'd made a huge mistake and wasted two years of their life. Today, as we close out the book of Mark, we're going to find out what happens next for the disciples. As we look at the text, we're going to look at the witnesses in the text. We're going to look at the instruction given in the text, and we're going to look at the actions that follow that instruction. We're going to look at the witnesses, we're going to look at the instruction, and we're going to look at the actions that follow. So let's start by looking at the witnesses in verses 9 through 13. Now, you may have noted as we read the text that there's this weird box that separates this section of text from the rest of the word. And it's because this section isn't in all of the manuscripts, and so there's discussion about whether or not this section is, should be included or not included. We're not here to argue that today, and in fact, I think it's interesting that all these things can be found elsewhere in Scripture. Look at John 20, Luke 24, Matthew 28. We see these things happening in the other Gospels as well. And because we see these things elsewhere in Scripture, we're not going to worry about whether or not this is supposed to be in here or not. We're just going to look at this, and we're going to focus on what Mark is trying to tell us here. Now keep in mind, Mark tends to keep things short. So we're not getting all the things that are said. We're getting Mark's summary. So let's take a look at verses 9 through 11. In 9 through 11, as we read, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. This is the Mary that he knows. This is the Mary that he has a relationship with. This is the Mary who went to go and, and uh, cover him in spices to anoint him. He appears to Mary and tells her who he is. She immediately runs back to the disciples and says, I have seen Jesus. Now remember, his disciples are weeping, concerned, worried. And here comes Mary, and she says, I saw Jesus. But she doesn't bring Jesus with her. She just says, I saw him. But they don't believe her. They don't believe that Mary actually saw Jesus. You can imagine, we might treat it like an Elvis sighting, right? We hear all the time, oh, we saw Elvis. Okay, great, yeah, thanks. That's the attitude they have right now. Mary says, I saw Jesus. They're like, sure you did. Now, we don't know whether this is because she was a woman, because if you remember last week we talked about how when it comes to witnesses in both the Jewish and the Greco-Roman world, women were not considered valid witnesses at the time. And so maybe that's why they don't believe her. 
Or maybe they just can't imagine that Jesus has come back. Whatever the case is, the disciples don't believe Mary. And then we move on to verses 12 and 13. Jesus appears to two of the disciples as they're walking on the road. They were ta- he talks to them. He uh, helps them to see who he is. We read this in the other Gospels. And once they realize who he is, they get excited. And they go back to the disciples too and they say, We saw him. We saw Jesus. And again, the disciples do not believe. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us why they don't believe. It it might be that they were just stuck in this cycle of guilt because they ran from Jesus and instead of helping him to prevent from dying and providing testimony, they fled. Maybe that's it. Maybe they were racked with guilt. Or maybe they're in grief because that Jesus that they were sure was going to lead them to victory is now dead and they feel hopeless. Whatever the case may be, why ever they decided to not believe either Mary or these other two disciples, we can know for sure that they seem to have forgotten that Jesus said he would rise again. Instead of thinking back to what Jesus had taught when he says, I will die, I will suffer, I will die, and I will rise again, They're stuck in their own grief. They're stuck in their own stupor. They're stuck in just worrying about what comes next. It's interesting because as I read this, I wonder, I wonder if later on, after Jesus appears to them and commissions them and sends them out and they go out to all the world to preach this gospel, I wonder if when they encounter doubt, they remember their own. They remember how here they didn't believe Mary and here they didn't believe those other two disciples. And I wonder if that gives them encouragement to continue preaching the gospel. But Mary and these other two disciples weren't enough for the 11 to believe that Jesus had risen. Witnesses appear to Christ's rising from the dead But that's not enough for the disciples. So having looked at the witnesses that saw Jesus, let's look at the instruction Jesus gives, starting in verse 14. In verse 14, afterward, he, that is Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. So other people have come in as they hide and said, hey, Jesus is back, and they don't believe it, and now Jesus appears to them. They're sitting at dinner, stressed, worried, concerned, in this stupor, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And what does he do? He rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw Jesus after Jesus had risen. What a shock that would be to them. Not just that, oh my gosh, Mary and the other two disciples were right, but that Jesus is back. 
you have to imagine that this appearance of Jesus shakes them out of that stupor, shakes them out of that funk, shakes them out of that fear. Because Jesus is back. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Just a few pages over, page 906 in the blue pew Bibles. John chapter 20, we get an expansion of this appearance to the disciples. In verses 24 through 29, we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The whole time Jesus is interacting with his disciples, he's telling them what has to happen. He's telling them that he has to suffer and he has to die. He's been telling them the truth all along. They didn't believe it or they interpreted it differently. But now, now he is shaking them from their unbelief to belief. He shakes the most cynical, Thomas, as we read in John 20, from unbelief to belief. He shook them from stupor and wandering and not doing anything to action. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We fall under that blessing. We have not seen Jesus, and yet we believe. Then look at verse 15. So he shakes them out of their stupor. He tells them that they should have believed, and now he commissions them. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. He tells them to go into all the world. He doesn't say, Go into the Jewish world. Go into the synagogues only. He emphatically says, go into all the world. The word all here in Greek is an emphatic emphasis that he is to go both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. The more expanded version of this command, the one that many of us have memorized in the past, appears in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew gives us a more expanded version of what Jesus is saying as he commissions his disciples to go out and preach the gospel. It's interesting, too, because as we read that, as we understand that, Jesus' primary command in that verse is to make disciples. The go, the baptizing, and the teaching are all how they make disciples. 
So Jesus shakes his disciples out of their reverie, and then Jesus commissions them to go into all the world. His instructions are for them to preach the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in verses 16 through 18, we see that these original disciples were given the ability to perform miracles just like Jesus to prove the authority of this gospel. And so the early church got to see the power of the gospel paired with signs and wonders that the disciples did as they ministered. The real power in these verses is not the amazing things that the disciples do to prove that this is from the Lord. The real power in this message is the power of the gospel to save all the world, Jew and Gentile. Christ has a job for the disciples to teach others what he taught them. He shakes them out of their stupor. He wakes them up from unbelief to belief. And he commissions them to go and to teach. That's not just a commission for them. It's a commission for us as well. So we've looked at the witnesses that Jesus appeared to, and we looked at his instruction to his disciples as he appears to them. Let's look at the actions that follow this instruction. First in verse 19, we'll see Christ descending, and then in verse 20, we'll see how the disciples obeyed, and then we'll talk about what we do now. These actions begin in verse 19 with Christ's ascension. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Again, keeping in mind, this is Mark who shortens everything. If you want a more expansive view of what this is, you can turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and and see that ascension. But we also see in Psalm 110, verse 1, this concept of sitting at the right hand of God and how Jesus is the one who can do that. The gospel is not just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just his perfection, his death on our behalf, paying for our sins, resurrecting from the dead, and defeating death. The gospel includes the fact that Jesus has ascended to be with the Lord, and right now is seated at God's hand praying for us. He ascended, is seated at God's hand. He is praying right now for us. As children of God, our brother Jesus is praying for us. What comfort that is. Jesus' story didn't end after his ascension. That wasn't the end, and now we tell that story to help motivate people and motivate ourselves to live godly lives. No, Jesus' story is still going until he comes back. He is actively praying for us right now as he is seated at God's right hand. Not only do we have Christ's perfection, not only did Christ take our sins onto himself, but we have his prayers as well. What an incredible encouragement that is. And then again, in his short summary-type summary fashion, Mark ends with verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The disciples started this section in a spiritual stupor, pondering life, 
wondering what was going on. Jesus comes and wakes them up out of that stupor, takes them from unbelief to belief, helps them to understand the things that he's been teaching the whole time, and sends them out. Having followed Christ, then followed into unbelieving stupor once he died, the disciples are now finally up at the high point of the curve. They're believing what Christ was teaching them all along. And they're sharing that great gospel. Where? Verse 20 says, everywhere. They're sharing that glorious gospel everywhere. The disciples have recovered out of their stupor. And now they are far more effective and motivated to preach the gospel to all people everywhere. The gospel is the power of God at work within us. This glorious gospel summarized by, Mar- or by Paul in uh, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death mean that, that everything that we do is tainted by sin. Didn't we just read that today in this Heidelberg Catechism that we, even our best actions, are tainted with sin? So when we try to do it on our own, we can't. The only thing we can earn, the only thing we can deserve, no matter how hard we try, is death. But the free gift, not not the thing that we have to work for, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Not death, but eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That gospel, its accompanying truths and the things that Jesus taught are the things that the disciples are now spreading everywhere to all. The disciples start in this stupor. They start wondering whether or not they made a mistake. They start wondering whether or not the things Jesus taught were true. They start even doubting people who said that they had seen Jesus. And then Jesus appears, shakes them out of their stupor, wakes them up, takes them from unbelief to belief, and sends them out. Every time we read the scripture, James 1.22 tells us not just to read it, but to apply it. Tells us that we aren't supposed to be hearers only of the word, but doers also. So what does that look like? As we look at this section of text, what does it look like in our own lives to apply this text? I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, you have experienced seasons of spiritual stupor, just like the disciples. You come to faith, you're excited, you understand how Jesus has done everything you can't do and how now you have a hope for eternity that you can't have on your own. You're passionate and you're excited. And then things start to get a little bit routine. You start going to church and start learning more and it's great and it's glorious. But then Satan is trying to distract you from the beauty of the gospel And you have these periods of spiritual stupor. Maybe not doubting that Christ is real, but just not glorifying the Lord. So if you've ever had one of those spiritual stupor experiences, how did you come out of it? 
How did you come out to a better place? How did the Lord work in your heart? Recently for me, as you know, our leaders are continuing to try and lead the church well, been reading and processing, what does it mean to be a leader? Now, it's easy to read leadership books and things like that that are put out by the world, but my leadership has to stand, our leadership as, as leaders in the church has to stand first from Scripture. So how do we take these difficult things that we're approaching, these hard decisions, these, these hard situations, and show God's glory in them? What the Lord has been showing me personally is that I am called not to worry, not to fret, not to freak out, but to trust Him. Philippians 1, 27 and 28 say, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I, this is Paul writing to the Philippians, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's easy for us to feel overwhelmed. And then we turn to Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we come across difficult things, are we anxious? Are we worried? Are we trying to control things? Are we trying to do things on our own? Are we, are we trying to find the right program or technique or whatever? Where are we trusting in the Lord? The Lord has been showing me how I have been anxious recently, and He's promised me, He's shown me through Scripture, James, remember, I am sovereign. I'm in control. Nothing is surprising me. I have you where I want you. He's pulled me out of this spiritual stupor of being anxious and shown me to trust Him. To love him. Yes, I still have to go through. We still as leaders have to make the right decision and pray and pursue the Lord. But we don't do that with anxiousness as though our decisions will change things. Instead, we do that with trust. So where are you in a spiritual stupor? Some of the things that I've seen others and myself doing or not doing in spiritual stupors is, are you in a place where you just don't want to read the Bible? That could be a spiritual stupor. Are you in a place where you just don't pray, you don't want to pray? That could be a spiritual stupor. Are you in a place where you're not serving, not using your gifts to bring glory to the Lord? That could be a spiritual stupor. Are you in a place where you're not sharing the gospel? You're not excited about what the Lord has done. You're not excited about this hope that he brings through Jesus. That could be a spiritual stupor. And there are many other examples of that. But when we are in these places, we have to look back at what the disciples went through and we have to pray, Lord, help me. As we've already read in this book, I believe, help my unbelief. 
So my encouragement to you this week, because you may not be in a spiritual stupor, or you might be, or you might be coming out of one, or you might be going into one, but pray this week that the Spirit would show you what stupors look like in your life, what doubt looks like in your life, and that the Spirit would bring you to a place of trusting in Christ. Pray that like the disciples, you would believe and follow him. And if you're not reading your Bible, not praying, not serving, not sharing the gospel, or not doing something else as a part of a spiritual stupor, the Spirit's going to show you that. Trust him, listen to him, and pursue the Lord. I pray that the Spirit would be showing all of us where our spiritual stupors are. Whether we're out of them or heading into them or in the middle of them, we would know through the Spirit how Satan is trying to draw us away from the Lord and instead we would be drawn back into God's presence. That we would see Jesus. That we would see the Gospel. And that we would believe so that we might continue to serve and glorify the Lord. Not doubting what he has said, but trusting instead and being obedient to all that he has called us to. Let's pray together. Father, anytime we read texts where someone has not obeyed you, it's very easy for us to shake our fingers, to wag our fingers at them. To say, shame on you. You should have believed the Lord. And yet often, Father, you are showing us where we need to shore up our faith. Father, we pray that you would help us. You would show us if we are in a spiritual stupor and that you would show us how the gospel brings us out of that. How the joy of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and current sitting at the right hand of God is motivation and joy and comfort and encouragement and hope for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to listen, to trust, and to obey as the Spirit shows us where in our lives we need to trust you more. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.